So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author's saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. So that's where we find ourselves today in Hebrews chapter 2. And often when you're studying a book of the Bible, it's helpful to know who wrote it, and who it's written to, so that you can begin to unpack its meaning. And so we learned last week that we don't know who the author is. In fact, uh, the author is unknown, and I think it's probably a converted Jewish priest, because the writer has an encyclopedic knowledge of the Levitical priest system, the sacrificial system, and he's just rattling it off, presuming we know it all as well as he does which is why each week we're going to have to kind of unpack what he presumes we know to catch up to his point. And he's writing to a group of urban Christians who are Jewish. So these were Hebrews, Jewish people who followed Judaism, who've converted to Christianity, and they're going through persecution. And he is wondering, the, the, the author is wondering, what can I equip these people going through persecution with so they will have the resources they need to trust God and to keep on keeping on. So that's who's, who's writing it and who it's written to. And he's going to say when you're going through trouble, when you're needing to forgive, when you're wondering you know, who your identity is, when you're wrestling with anything in life, the gospel has all the resources you need. And here's what you need to know as you go through suffering. You need to know that Jesus, he's bigger and he is better, and he is more breathtaking than anything God's ever revealed in the Old Testament. And the more you understand who he is and what he did for you and what you have in him, the more you'll have the resources to live whatever challenges are going on in your life today. In fact, you remember in chapter 1, he paints a picture 
that Jesus is not just a fragmented explanation of who God is. God has spoken in fragments in the past, a priest here, a pastor here, a prophet there, a judge here. But now he's spoken in full. He's spoken in son, he says. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, the fullness of God. Then he goes on to say, and that son is the one who made all of the universe and all of the world and everything in it. And chapter 2 will say, and therefore, I want you to furiously obsess over who he is and what he's done for you. I want you to become so furiously obsessed with Jesus and what he's done for you that it's going to give you all the resources you need to handle anything that comes your way. Is that really true? Like, can that really, that sounds like a Christian, that sounds like the kind of thing a pastor should say, but is that really practically true? I'll explain it this way, coming out of chapter 1. Did you know the distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles? That's a lot, right? But if you took that 92 million miles, and let's just say that that was the width of a piece of paper. (laughs) Earth here, sun here. And Jesus made it all. Did you know the distance between the earth... And the nearest star would be a stack of papers, 92 million miles, 70 feet tall up to the ceiling. And Jesus made it all, according to the writer of Hebrews. 70 feet tall to the nearest star. And did you know our solar system, our galaxy, if you measured it from left to right, the distance across our galaxy would be a stack of papers... 310 miles tall. And Jesus, the God who made and created all of that, gave it all up to become a man, to die for you because he loves you, because he wanted you to have the resources you need to live this life. Do you ask a God like this to be your personal assistant? Of course not. And and whatever God asks you to sacrifice or go through or trouble you endure, doesn't it pale in comparison to the sacrifice he gave for you to offer you the forgiveness and eternity inheritance you have in heaven? See, the more you furiously obsess on who he is and what he's done for you, the more you can put things in perspective. And many of the people, these Jewish Christians, are being tempted to go back to Judaism. They're thinking that by keeping some aspect of Torah, they can somehow add to the, to the, to the substance of what Jesus did. Yes, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, Jesus died for me. I'm getting to heaven. But it's Jesus plus the fact that I don't gossip that makes me a little better than other people. It's Jesus plus I don't drink alcohol that makes me a little better than other people. It's Jesus plus I don't criticize people the way my sister-in-law does or the way my mom does makes me a little better than others. Really? Like something you're going to do by observing Torah a little bit better than others is going to somehow add to the adequacy of what Jesus did? Isn't that ridiculous? Yet every time we add a little bit of the law to what Jesus did and think it somehow makes us more forgivable or more acceptable for God... 
it's as ridiculous as thinking that the God who made all of this needed our help in what he provided. So I want to look at three ways that we can be furiously obsessed with who he is and what he did for you. And my hope is by doing that, you'll have the resources you need to endure whatever it is that you're facing today. So number one, what does it look like for us to be furiously obsessed so we don't drift? He says, I want you to be furiously obsessed with Jesus and what he did for you so you don't drift into other ways of thinking. About the law, about Judaism, about where your identity comes from. Here's how it begins in chapter 2. Therefore, since the God who made all of creation is at your disposal... We must give, we must give more earnest heed. More earnest heed. That's a weird thing to say. What in the world does that mean? More earnest heed. Well, to be more earnest heed in the Greek literally means to become furiously obsessed with this. You need to become furiously obsessed with who he is and what he did and what he offers. So you don't drift into being tempted to think something else could somehow be more adequate than Jesus and what he's done for you. And if you don't, take more earnest heed. To what? To the things we've already heard, to the gospel. You don't need different things from the gospel. You need the gospel. And if you don't focus on the gospel, focus on who he is, and focus on what he's done for you, you're going to drift. And you won't even know it. How could you not know it? There's a story in 1827 of a guy named Edward Perry, William Edward Perry. And he took an expedition up to the Arctic. And as they're heading up to the Arctic to explore, they kept marching north. And they would march like all day, march up through the snow, cold winds, the whole bit. And at the end of the day, they'd you know, sleep at that night and they'd get up and they just didn't feel like they're making any progress. But how do you know? It's, you know? it's snow here, white here, snow everywhere. Well, after several days of just marching all day long and not feeling, feeling like they're getting anywhere, they finally began to align their position to the stars to triangulate where they were. And they realized, sure enough, the farther north they went, by the end of the day, they were actually farther south. And what they determined is that they were not marching on the continent. They were actually marching on an ice float drift. And so they were moving along north on the drift and the piece of ice, but it was actually drifting south and they were losing ground. And unless we align ourselves to who Jesus is and what the gospel is and what our identity is, God, we are going to drift toward self-righteousness, toward fear, to finding other idols in our life, to thinking we need to somehow add the law to what Jesus did to make ourselves acceptable. We drift. And that's what he goes on to say. He says, you're going to drift away. And if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast. So when the law came, the law was good. It came through Moses. It came through angels. And it was steadfast. It was good. And there were consequences to obeying it and consequences to disobeying it. And every transgression it laid out and disobedience received a just reward. So if the law was good and the angels were good and Moses was good and there were ramifications for rejecting that or of not believing that or not living according to that, how much more shall we escape if we neglect such a greater salvation? God came to earth for you and I. Which at first began to be spoken by the Lord that was confirmed to us by those who heard him. 
Now notice how many times he says we and us. We, we, us. So the writer, a Christian, includes himself in the group. So now we come to one of the Bible study questions. Who's he talking to here? So when it says to neglect, for example, does that mean like if we neglect such a salvation, we're going to lose our salvation? Is that what he means? We'll talk about it a lot more when we get to chapter 6 of Hebrews. Who's the audience here? Are these non-Christians? And he's saying, hey, you better become Christians because there's high consequences to, of hell if you reject this thing. Or is he talking to Christians and saying if you neglect this or drift away, you're no longer a Christian? Right? These are questions the text brings up. So there's really three primary audiences that could be who he's speaking to. So these audiences will come up over and over and over again in the book. One audience are the Jewish Christians who believe that Jesus is their everything. You know, I'm going through suffering, I'm going through difficult, but Jesus is everything for me. There's another group of people who are maybe fully sold out to God. They're probably going to heaven, but Jesus is something, right? He's not everything, but he's something. And he's something I trust for eternity, but he's not something I can trust for everyday living. We might call these carnal Christians, backslidden Christians. So maybe he's saying to the backslidden Christians, you're neglecting the final revelation of Jesus, and there's going to be consequences. God's discipline in your life, loss of future rewards in your life. You, those of you who are kind of church attenders who believe that Jesus is something, need to move back to understanding, meditate on him, reflecting on him, becoming furiously obsessed with him, that he would become your everything. So you have the resources to go through what you're going through. Or maybe he's saying, we Christians... If we neglect this, we will end up losing our salvation. Jesus is nothing. You're drifting. See, each one changes the interpretation of the text. And if he's saying we, how could he include himself if he's talking about non-Christians? Right, the writer's a Christian. He's going to heaven. So some people take this view. John MacArthur takes this view, for example. Um, he would say that the writer's saying we Jewish people. If we neglect this. Eh, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think. As I'll lay out in chapter 6. Why are the gospel. The very essence of the gospel. Is you can't lose your salvation. Because God gained it for you. You don't lose it. And I'll, I'll build that case later in the series. So who's he talking to? I think he's talking to Christians. People who are going to heaven. Who have drifted into becoming. Uh, less than focused on Jesus. And he's not saying those of us who are real Christians are going to drift to here. He's saying you've already drifted to here and I want you to come back so that you have the resources you need. And there were consequences to, to neglecting the law. But man, there's even more consequences to, to not fully focusing and meditating and being obsessed with everything he has for you. And so I think he's going to constantly be encouraging folks in this category to move back to Jesus my everything. Let's jump back into the text. If we as Christians begin to drift and neglect, and, and the word neglect in Hebrew actually has two meanings, or in Greek rather. It's a habit of not caring. It's like a, a ring slipping off your finger and you don't notice. The word also is like a naval metaphor of a boat that drifts past the harbor because you weren't paying attention. All the resources the gospel offers you as a Christian, you're not going to have access to if you slip past the harbor. 
you've slipped into Judaism. You've slipped into law giving. You've slipped into I obey to get my resources, not he's given me my resources. You ever been so distracted or neglected that you lost access to something? Because it just kind of slipped your mind. You didn't obsess over it. You didn't focus on it. I was uh, going down the Little Miami River a couple years ago with Quinn, and we're on this kayak together, and we're having a great time. We're kayaking, and if you've ever been to the Little Miami River, it's slow, very slow. But occasionally we'd see a spot, we'd be like, white water! Oh, we yelled white water, and we're pedaling over the white water. But the only way to really get white water in a Little Miami is because a tree fell over, and so there's a little bit of white water for a second. So I'm going over by the white water. Well, to get there, it's a little bit dangerous, but I've been kayaking my whole life. I'm going to be fine. So I kayak over there with Quinn on the front. All of a sudden, we hit this white water, and the tree hits us because we didn't see just underneath, and we get toppled over. And all of a sudden, Quinn's, you know, swimming through the water, and, you know, I'm trying to grab him, and here goes the paddle here, and here goes the kayak here. And I kind of had that moment of panic, right? Because I'm distracted by so many important things. Grab a little of this and grab a little of that. Don't let the kayak get away. That's how we're going to get out of here. Kind of grabbing everything together. We get through the white water, we float the rest of the way home. I come to church a few weeks later and somebody says, Hey Chad, can I talk to you? Sure. Why? Is everything going okay with your marriage? I think so. Do you know something I don't? He says, You're not wearing your wedding ring. I used to have a gold wedding ring. Apparently that water in the little Miami was a little colder than I realized because I could never get my wedding ring off. But apparently that day it was just cold enough and I was just distracted enough that it slipped off my finger and it somehow at the bottom of little Miami and by now it's in the Ohio River and maybe now it's down the Mississippi. So I lost sight of something important because I was distracted by the things around me. And that's the idea here of this word. So with that in mind, how about you? Are you drifting these days? Have you drifted from a time that Jesus was everything to he's just become something? And if so, you're not going to have access to the full resources of the gospel. Oh, it's available to you, but if you don't meditate on it and obsess over it, you're not going to know how to live it out and use it in your everyday life. And that's the idea he's talking about here. So back to angels. Why is he talking about angels here? Well, to understand that, why does he start chapter 2 by saying, For the word spoken through angels proves steadfast. We need to understand what the angels and the law have to do with anything. Well, back in Deuteronomy, it said, The Lord came down to Sinai to give the law and dawned on them. He shone forth on Mount Paran and he came forth with 10,000 of his saints. Which is an Old Testament term for angels. So God gave the law through angels. And from his right hand came a fiery law. So when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the law and the first five books of the Bible, it came via angels. So law is good, angels are good. But why would you go back to the law and angels if Jesus is something better? Even Stephen is giving a speech in the book of Acts, and he references this idea that the law was given by angels. So see, who have received the law by the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. The law was good, but we didn't keep it. Why would you go back to the law when grace offers us so much more? Now, with that in mind, we're jumping in to our second obsession. And to understand this second obsession, we're going to have to dig into the theology of what's called angelology. So when you came in today, we gave you a, a, a bookmark. 
you know, part of why we call this equipping service is because we want to equip you with tools to study the Bible on your own. So you can grab that or you can download that off the website. If you're watching online, uh, feel free to just download that directly off the app or the, the website. These are five principles you can use for studying any passage. And we're going to use several of them today. Number one, check the context. Who's the original audience? Because the audience mattered just in that last passage and it will keep showing up. Number two, use the Bible to interpret the Bible. We're about to do that because the writer of Hebrews is about to tell us what he thinks a psalm meant and he's going to interpret it for us. So we're going to use the Bible, Hebrews, to interpret something that was said back in Psalms. All right, so that's one we're going to look at today. So here's what he says here in the next verse. He's digging down into a psalm and telling us how it relates to this piece. He says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. So angels, as powerful as they are, that's not who he put in charge of the world. But one testified in a certain place. He's now quoting from the Old Testament, specifically quoting Psalms 8. Somebody in Psalms 8 said, What is man that you are mindful of him? Like he's talking about human beings. Or the son of man, oh, here's a new character, the son of man, that you take care of him. What did that mean? It's like, you know, mankind, it's amazing that humans made out of flesh, God, you'd care about them so much. And the son of man. All right, keep going. For you have made him, the son of man or man, a little lower than angels which is the word Elohim, which means spiritual beings. So it's not just angels, it's all of the spiritual beings. So you made him lower than angels, but then you crowned him with glory and honor and set him over everything you made, including the angels. And by doing that, you put all things, including angels, in subjection under his feet. To which we say, hmm, hmm, I wish I had any idea what that means, what does that mean? He's going to say, you've heard this a hundred times. I want to tell you what this means. And this was all pointing to Jesus. Really? I don't see a lot of Jesus in there. Well, in the book of Corinthians, Paul's talking to a group of people who are having kind of these frivolous lawsuits with one another. And he says, guys, it's one thing to use the law when there's a legitimate issue, but stop suing each other for any old little thing. By the way, do you not know that we as human beings will one day judge angels? To which most of us are going, no, no I did not know that we're going to judge angels. He, he cites that as if we all know that. How, how, how did I miss the we're going to judge angels memo? Right? Did you get the memo? I didn't get the memo. How much more things pertain to this life? When you understand that you're going to, in the future, be evaluating spiritual forces and judging them, it will help you today learn how to discern and try and use some discernment now. Really? All right, quick overview of angeology, real quick. So there are two realms. The spiritual realm, where God's spiritual family exists, and the physical realm, where he made human beings like you and I. There's only one God, the creator God, and he is Yahweh. And yet he is also an Elohim, a spiritual being, and he made many other Elohim spiritual beings that are not the creator, but they are spiritual beings. What are some of those spiritual beings? Well, some of them are fallen, the bad guys, and some of them are the good guys. The Bible is a little confusing because all the good guys can be referred to as angels, which simply means messengers. But it's not only a title of the good guys, it's also a type of good guys. 
So let me give you a few of the different characters. Some of the bad guys in the Bible, spiritual beings, are demons and Satan and then Nephilim. And as Ephesians 6 says, princes and rulers and powers of this dark age. Different messengers, the good guys, they're spiritually in the Bible, include angels that gave us the Torah, cherubs, seraphim, watchers, Daniel chapter 9, holy ones, sons of men, and sons of God. Wow, I didn't realize there's so many. So whatever Psalms is saying, it's saying that God made someone, a man or son of man, who is lower than all of them, and then crowned that person higher than all of them. And remember he said both men and the son of man, how do those both connect? Well, here's the idea. God came to earth as Jesus. Therefore, by becoming mortal, he was under angels. He then died for you and I and was crowned with glory and is now set over angels, seated at the right hand of God. And he offers to anyone who puts their trust in him, we become a joint heir with Christ and we are exalted with him so the man and son of man are all over the angels. That's what the gospel offers. That you and I, God sees us right now as followers of Jesus exalted with full inheritance to everything God has and everything he's given and all galaxies and all those things, all of that is offered to you and I as a joint heir with Christ. And that's why one day we're going to evaluate angels because we've been elevated over angels, not based on what we've done, but based on what he did. Okay, so what? So what? You are a child of God. You in Christ are elevated to that line. So his application is, you need to start wanting to rule now. You're an ambassador of the king. You're going to one day rule the kingdom uh, in heaven. But even now in this life, what does it look like in my circumstance, in my situation, to live out the kingdom now, here? Let's apply it to a few areas. Persecution. Whatever persecution you're going for, going through, the worst the world could take away is your life, your property, your riches, and your glory. But your position, your real riches are in heaven where moth and rust can never touch. So whatever is taken away from you, whatever you lose in this life is nothing. It's just funny money. It's temporal compared to the eternal things you have in Jesus. So focus on that when you're going through persecution. You have trouble forgiving somebody? Do you realize how much God forgave you and how much he's given you? If you realize what he's done for you, then of course your future inheritance and your future forgiveness that he's given you, then of course you can forgive the $2 charge that somebody has on you when God forgave you $2 million. Do you have trouble giving away money financially? Well, if you realize your real riches are in Christ, then of course you can be generous with God's money here on earth because it's not your source of identity. It's what he gave you. By ruling over angels, because he goes on to say he's crowned you with glory. Do you find your identity in what you do? How good you are at your job or what kind of a good mom you are or dad you are? You see, that will only elevate you so far. 
the law will only get you so far. Idols only get you so far. No, no, no. If you say, I struggle with my self-worth, what's because you're basing it on yourself? What if you furiously obsess with what he's done to you, how he sees you, that God sings over you, that God loves you, that God has elevated you above angels? What if that's where you got your identity? Not based on what you've done or how well you've obeyed or disobeyed or what shame or whatever bad thing you've done this week. No, 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 that's nonsense. Obsess over this good news that you are crowned with glory and honor. And that future inheritance and that present identity is what motivates you to find your worth today. That's what he's getting at here. He wants you and I to start ruling and being ambassador of the king now. Because we realize the law, I'm not going to trust in the law. I got something better than the law. I'm not going to trust in angels, they're good. But I serve someone far better than angels in Jesus. That's the idea. And all that then builds into his third point, which is I want you to become furiously obsessed with following your captain, the captain of your salvation, into victory. You can walk in victory in this life when you realize you've already have the victory in him. So those are the ideas he's walking through. Here's how he says it, kind of three points he makes. Point one, Jesus died to bring you to glory, to position you over angels and principalities and powers. So if you have spiritual temptation coming your way, because of what Christ has done for you, you can resist temptation. You're over those powers. And when you do fall into sin, when you do give into temptation, it's already been forgiven. You receive that forgiveness. Here's what he says. For in that he put all in subjection under his feet. All, including the angels, are under who? Jesus, the Son of Man's feet. He left nothing that's not under him. But now we do not see yet all things under him. Meaning we're still living in a world with brokenness, a world with sin and shame and, and, and tragedy. Because until the future, all things will be set right. But we see Jesus. Jesus who was made a little lower than angels. He became a man. He suffered the death. And because of that, he was crowned with glory and honor. Oh yeah, okay, that's how he got up there. And he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He brought us with him. So he's just explaining what I said a second ago with all those pictures. He's made lower than angels. Because of his death, he's crowned with glory and honor so that he could take everyone with him who put trust in him. Which is why the next part of the verse is, for it was fitting for him. It was, it was consistent with the character of God for him. For whom all things and by whom all things were made brought you to glory. Positioned you on high. Gave you that gift. Did you know that you're a saint right now? If you're a believer in Jesus? A saint, the Bible word. That you're glorified already if you're a follower of Jesus? That you've already been forgiven your past, present, future? So if you're struggling with shame, you need to furiously obsess over the gospel. Oh, I did this. I can't believe I did this. I'm beating myself over this. You're looking at the wrong thing. You're obsessing. You're furiously obsessing over the wrong thing. Furiously obsessed over his forgiveness. And what he's done for you. To be free from shame and guilt. Follow your captain into the victory he has for you. He died to bring you to glory. More than that, he died to show you how maturity comes through suffering. 
right? Because he's writing, remember, who's he writing to? Christian, Jewish Christians who are suffering. And suffering always feels wasteful, it feels meaningless, it feels like there's no purpose. He says, no, no, there's purpose to it. And I'll show you why there's purpose, because there was purpose of Jesus' suffering. He says, to make the captain of their salvation, this is one of the names for Jesus here, perfect. He got more mature. Jesus got even more perfect. He was already perfect, yes, but he got even more perfect through sufferings. Because it was through suffering we got to see how much he loved us. He already loved us. But when he's on a cross with nails pounded into his hands and feet, with the Romans you know, crushing him, and in the middle of that suffering, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We got to see a picture of what unconditional love looks like. And if Jesus, the captain of our salvation, was made more perfect, more mature through suffering, then you too can be made more mature and perfect through suffering. So he who sanctifies sets us apart, and those who are being sanctified, we're one. We're brothers now. We're joined with him now. What he has, we have, because of what he did. For this reason, he's your brother. He's not just the king, transcendent king. He's your brother. And he's the kind of brother who's willing to say, man, I'm proud of you. When was the last time your brother told, him, told you he loved you, he was proud of you? You're like, oh, that's not going to happen until hell freezes over. Jesus is your brother. And he's not ashamed to call you a brother. And he says, let me tell you how I, God, the imminent God, feel about you. I will declare your name to my brethren. I brag about you. In heaven, I brag about you. Think about that. Jesus sits around bragging about you to fellow brothers. Did you know Jesus is writing songs about you? I will sing praise to you in the midst of the assembly. And again, when you put your trust in him, you, you're joined to his family. Here I am and the children whom God has given me. He's quoting the Old Testament to build the case that God, when he died, took his sons, mortals who put trust in him, and brought him with him to glory. That's the brother we have. That's the family of God idea that he's offering to us. And this is such a powerful idea. In fact, there was an emperor by the name of Trajan. And Trajan was a king, a horrible, horrible emperor. But he was a powerful, powerful king. But he was known as, in writings, the king, the brother. But more than that, he was the king, the brother, and the captain. Because unlike other kings who wouldn't go into battle, Trajan was the king, but actually led his forces into battle. That's the idea of the captain. He's the first to lead you into battle. He was the first to take on death for you and I. Oh, yeah. And he's the king who didn't have to come down from heaven, but he's the captain that led the battle. He led the charge. But he's also a brother. It was said that in battle, when one of the fellow men got scarred or hit by a sword, Trajan would rip his royal robes and walk over to you, one of his men, and wrap your wounds with his robes. A beautiful picture of a king who is also a captain, but also a brother. And how much more is Jesus, who had it all, but came become immortal to be the captain of our salvation to take on death for you and I, and he ripped his entire body open on the cross 
to bring us the healing and forgiveness and to wrap our wounds. He is truly our king, our captain, and our brother. And he did this, the writer finishes by saying this, he did all this to defeat Satan and his power. Now we're bringing all these ideas full force back to the angels. Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, we are made mortal, he himself likewise shared the same. He became mortal. Through death, he might destroy him, the source of death, who had the power of death over us, that is, the devil. That's why Jesus came. See how all these pieces now fit together? Angels came through the law. Jesus had to be made under the law in order to come and defeat the law, which then put him over the law and took us with us to defeat spiritual forces and to defeat death for us, the captain of our salvation. Starting my friend Chris. Chris has been coming to Horizon for many, many years, but what really struck her was a year that Mark Theskin was drawing a picture during the Easter service of Jesus' suffering. She said, I don't know why. I'd heard you talk about Jesus a hundred times. It was that day at Horizon. I went, I get it. I get it, and I became a Christian. But four or five years later, I still feel like I relate better to God than Jesus, she said. Until I started watching this, the Chosen TV series. I don't know if you watch it. We watch it as a family. She goes, I've never seen the God I could relate to up close and personal until this new TV series. She said, I'm starting to see God as my brother my friend, someone I can pray to and someone I can talk to. And that's what the writer's doing. He wants you to see God as the transcendent God, but the imminent God, your brother and your captain. So what's the application for us? And I think this is kind of the application for us to take home. It's how he ends the chapter. He says, I want you to realize that Jesus is bigger and better than anything that God's ever revealed. The law, angels, the whole bit. So you can become furiously obsessed with being freed. He wants you to live with freedom become furiously obsessed with enjoying the perks, the perks, the aid that he offers you as your priest and captain. Here's how he says it as he ends the chapter. Enjoy the perks of being freed. Jesus came to release those. He defeated death through Satan to release you from the fear of death. All who were in the lifetime subject to the bondage that we're all going to die. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels. Jesus didn't come to die for angels. He came to give aid to the seed of Abraham, human beings. Give aid. Therefore, in all things, he, may, he had to be made like a brethren. He had to become a human that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And we'll pick up on this theme later. In things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for sins of all the people. In that he himself suffered, being tempted, he is able to give aid. He gives aid, he gives aid to those who are tempted. Do you need some aid? He came that you would be released from death and be freed from your idol being other people's approval. What Jesus offers is so much better than other people's approval. You're obedient, you feel good because you had a good day or bad because you had a bad day. How about you put your confidence in Jesus' obedience and you let him elevate you all the way. So you can be aided by him and be free in him because your confidence in him because you're furiously obsessed with what he did for you and what it means for you to put your confidence in him not what you do or don't do not on what you have or don't have but everything that you've been given by him he's here to be your faithful priest your merciful priest giver and to rescue you from the fear of death are you drifting? Has Jesus gone from being everything to just being your something? 
Or maybe just the nature of kind of life getting busy, it kind of slipped off your finger. If so, you're not going to have the resources you need to endure suffering, to give, to serve, to sacrifice, to find your identity in what really matters. So this week, I want to encourage you, use these tools, dig into the Bible, dig into Hebrews, and become furiously obsessed with who he is and what he's done, not just for everybody, but for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the one who made the universe knows us by name. And the God who named the stars is singing and bragging about us. God, may that fill our hearts to overflowing this morning. God, that we would walk in confidence that you are with us. Whatever the world takes away from us is nothing compared to what is secure in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. We'll see you all next week.